Welcome to Limitless, the Blind Beginnings podcast where seeing things differently inspires limitless possibilities. This podcast is being brought to you by Blind Beginnings, an organization based in Vancouver, Canada, that supports children and youth who are blind or partially sighted, along with their families. Limitless was created in order to inform, educate, entertain, and share stories from within the blind and partially sighted community in order to show the world that the opportunities for those who are blind or partially sighted are truly limitless. And now, it is my pleasure to introduce you to your host, the executive director and founder of Blind Beginnings, Sean Marcelet. Welcome back to Limitless. I'm your host, Sean Marcelet. We are talking about mental health today. May is Mental Health Month, and May 7th is Child and Youth Mental Health Day. So in honor of that, this podcast is all about mental health, and I'm really excited to welcome Nika for this conversation. Welcome back to the podcast, Nika. Hi, thank you so much for having me on this episode. So I thought we could start by defining mental health, and I found this definition on the internet. Complete mental health is having psychological well-being, a presence of happiness, overall life satisfaction, and social well-being, which develops through participation in physical fitness, relationship building, development of independence in activities of daily living, having quality sleep, and nurturing social supports. Mental health also includes having the tools to cope with stress, regulate emotions, and participate to one's full ability in personal goals and aspirations. Does that sound like a good definition to you, Nika? Yeah, I think it's really accurate, honestly. So maybe tell our listeners, why is this an important topic for you? So mental health is really important to me because I have personal and firsthand experience with mental health issues. Um, For the past few years, I have struggled with clinical depression, generalized anxiety disorder, and social anxiety. Um, I also have suffered from panic attacks in the past and still continue to this day. Well, mental health is really important to me as well. Uh, As a registered clinical counselor, I definitely, I, I see mental health as important as physical health. And I feel like you know, we, we know that we need to keep our bodies healthy, but we don't necessarily spend as much time and energy in making sure that our mental health is strong and, and solid as well. So um, I think in my teen years, I definitely, I never had like a diagnosis, uh, but I definitely had a lot of self-esteem issues and a lot of insecurity and maybe even periods of depression undiagnosed looking back now. So I think this is really an important topic. A lot of times I think mental health, like the mind-body connection, there is a correlation there. For example, a lot of eating disorders and addictions, they have physical consequences on the body. And a lot of times people view them as physical conditions, but the root issue actually is mental health or even with anxiety. It can have physical manifestations on the body. It can cause stress ulcers. It can cause heart palpitations. So there's definitely a connection. Absolutely. Yeah. And it's funny, we'll go to the doctor if we're having a physical symptom of some kind, 
And then often that is where we find out that maybe it is a psychological something that has caused that physical symptom, right? Yeah, like that's how it was for me. Like I didn't start getting, you know, diagnosed or filling out any assessments until I had an anxiety attack and my heart was pounding and it was so tight in my chest that my parents took me to the emergency room because they thought I had a heart attack because I had heart issues from before. Mm, That must have been scary. It was, especially the ER, typically, at least in the lower mainland, you go and I had to wait for five, six hours usually. But that time when I told them that I had trouble breathing and I had tightness in my chest, they immediately admitted me and gave me an ECG. So that's kind of when I knew, okay, if they're not making me wait, for hours and hours, then clearly something is wrong. So what happened after they figured out it was a panic attack? After that, I started to fill out some assessments. I went to my pediatrician at the time and I got some forms. Um, We also talked to some people at my school, like my EA and my grade counselor, and they noticed that there was a lot going on. My performance in school dropped suddenly. And when I filled out my assessment and I got my results, it indicated that I had anxiety and depression. And that's when I started to see a counselor. So was it a surprise for you to get sort of that diagnosis? I think it was because at the time I didn't really know what the words like anxiety and depression were. I knew like what the word anxious meant and I knew what it meant to be depressed, but I didn't really know that that was an actual like real condition Mm -hmm. can you I'm just thinking that some of our listeners might might be in in a similar boat where they wouldn't understand what that means can you describe what anxiety and depression mean for you yeah so it is different for everyone and for me depression was not wanting to do anything Getting out of bed was really hard. Even simple things like hygiene, basic hygiene, like felt like a lot of work for me. Um, And it was just a lot. I kind of just felt like life was way too much at the time and things got really overwhelming. Simple things would seem like such a huge thing. Now in retrospect, small things that would kind of set me off you know didn't see don't seem like a big deal now but at the time everything that would go wrong just felt like one more thing piling up um and anxiety for me a lot of it was social I focused so much on what other people thought of me I would get knots in my stomach I would get sweaty palms I when I was having a panic attack or anxiety attack, I would have tightness in my chest and trouble breathing. Um, I had to a couple times remove myself from situations like running out of class just because I needed a moment by myself just to cry and I'm a really emotional person. So you started seeing a counselor. Did that help? Um, I think it did a little and it kind of got to a point where my depression was getting better, but my anxiety was worse. And um, that's when my doctor and my counselor both agreed that 
we should consider taking the next step. So that's when I saw a psychiatrist and started being put on medication. Okay. And did, and was that helpful? Um, that was helpful. Once again, it was helpful for my depression, my anxiety, I think more kind of using in conjunction with counseling and medication helped with anxiety because I needed kind of some tools to help me in situations where I was having panic attacks. So that was kind of an ongoing thing I needed to work on. So how did other people react while all of this was going on for you? Did did peers at school know? How, how did your family respond? So at the time when I was getting uh, my diagnosis, I didn't really have many friends. Um, that's kind of one thing that contributed to my depression because the last two years of elementary school and then the first two years of high school, like I felt really isolated. Um, so I didn't really have any friends my age to really lean on. Um, and my parents, I think they were just really worried at the time. They were kind of confused and they didn't know like why all this stuff was happening. They didn't know why I just didn't care about school or care about anything. And I think they just tried to do their best to help. So do you think that your visual impairment has anything to do with the way you were feeling? I think it did just because it contributed a lot to the kind of isolation factor. Um, and when I was younger, I, you know, didn't really have friends when I was younger, but I was kind of in my own head. I could be my own best friend. I didn't notice things as much. And then when I got older and I noticed that people would go like skating together or they'd go swimming together or have sleepovers, I never got that. And that's when I kind of put the connection that I was the only person in my class that had a visual impairment. And I kind of figured that's why people avoided me. Okay. So what was helpful? Like, how did you get through this? Sounds like a really challenging time. I think one thing that helped was eventually I started to make friends in high school. It took a long time, but just having people who I could talk to, um, I had a friend in high school and she struggled a lot with depression and also with an eating disorder. So that kind of, you know, it was something that could relate to and talk about. And I also did meditation and that helped and, you know, just crystals and diffusers and essential oils. Starting dance helped just because I wasn't doing any physical activity at the time. I got a lot of medical diagnoses physical like with physical issues and I had to quit a lot of the sports I did so this was a kind of low impact activity I could do to release endorphins yeah it's an interesting point a lot of kids with a visual impairment are pulled out of PE uh, because it's not fully accessible or sometimes because it's felt to be too dangerous and and really that physical activity is is equally as important for physical health as mental as it is for mental health right yeah and like I never did PE in high school I tried to do it in elementary school and then they kind of figured it was just easier um and I played goalball the first two years of high school but then I had to quit kind of halfway through the year. And then in grade 10, I just did gym online, which, you know, it's really easy to fake 
gym online and not do it properly and there wasn't a lot of monitoring Mm -hmm. because at the time I was in school and I didn't have any friends in school the time I was in Blind Beginnings helped. I loved our youth leadership meetings and all of our workshops and community discoveries because that was kind of the only time when I wasn't different. I wasn't isolated. I already had a community that I was a part of and that I felt welcome in. And I think that really helped a lot. And I really treasured those times that I could just be myself. Yeah, I know I felt that way as a teenager when I went to summer camp with other kids that were visually impaired and because I didn't have a lot of friends at school either. I usually had like one or two friends and and most of the time I was hiding my visual impairment because I didn't want anybody to know. So at camp, I didn't have to hide. I could just be myself. And the fact that I was blind was like irrelevant because we all were so we didn't really even talk about it that much because it was just this thing that everyone had in common and we could just be teenagers. And I know how important that was to me too. Yeah. And I remember we had, when I was 14 or 15, we had this support group um, that we'd meet in person all the time. And that was just my favorite. Like we got to talk about our feelings and we got to talk about what was upsetting us and troubling us. And like it was, you were facilitating it and you're a counselor. So that was amazing and so much better than my kind of private counseling sessions. I think finding the right counselor is so important. And I think that's something, you know, I, the very first counselor I went to see didn't really work out for me. I don't think, I think she was really focused on my blindness and the fact that I didn't want to use my white cane at the time. And I was there for lots of different reasons and maybe using my cane would have helped me in the other areas as well. But I, she, she's, I don't know. She just was really stuck on that. Um, And I kind of wonder if, you know, if she was, if she had a visual impairment too, maybe she would have had a different perspective. So like, but anyways, finding the right counselor is the, the right person that fits with you is so important. And I think people sometimes see a counselor, they don't gel. And then they decide counseling doesn't work, but it really makes a difference when you've got somebody who you feel really gets you. And even the support group aspect, um, like I know others who've said they kind of prefer group counseling sessions and individual, just because when you say you have a trouble, trouble with something and then someone chimes in saying, yeah, I can relate. I agree. Like it makes you feel so validated. Mm -hmm. If you could maybe give advice to parents whose teens are having some mental health struggles, what, what would that be? Um, I would say it's the most important thing to realize is that it is very real to them. And I think on the outside kind of looking in, it can, you know, be hard to tell because when someone gets hurt and they get a cut, you can see it. Um, when someone's sick, you know, you can tell they have a runny nose, you can see it. And I think it's really hard to kind of grasp that something, someone's struggling with something when there aren't any visible signs. So I would say it's very real to them and supporting them through that is so, so important. Just because a lot of times with mental health, when people don't fit in a certain kind of bubble or perfectly, you know, fit in the stereotype, it can be hard to 
kind of see the red flags and to kind of tell that someone's going through that. So what sort of things do you do now to kind of maintain good mental health? So now I actually started competitive swimming again, and that helps. And I also do dry land training just um, by myself using free workouts in my room. I diffuse my essential oils constantly. And I love citrus, especially that just makes me feel so happy and energetic. I do skincare. I love beauty and makeup and fashion and all of that. And just putting on like a nice watermelon scented mask just makes me feel really good. And it's taking time out of my day kind of to show myself like, you know, you're amazing and you're worth it. And you deserve to use all of these amazing products that will help you not only look beautiful on the outside, but really I feel good on the inside. You mentioned meditation helped you. Do you, do you meditate regularly? Um, I would say I meditate maybe once or twice a week. And it's kind of something I'm working on because I also have ADHD. So sometimes, you know, when you're meditating, ideally you're supposed to have a clear mind. And sometimes my mind wanders to, you know, what's for dinner or I want to buy that cute outfit I saw so-and-so on Instagram wearing. <laughs> and I think the biggest thing that helped is not beating myself up for having my mind wander. I used to do that a lot when I started. And now it's kind of like, okay, it's a journey and I'm human. And I'm taking time to just try to sit still as best as I can and try to focus as best as I can and listen to some calming music or some nature sounds and you know, that's amazing. Uh, yeah, I'm really not, that's an area I'm not very good at meditating. Um, although to be fair, I haven't spent a ton of time because I think I just think I'm not good at it and I don't like doing things I'm not good at, but I, I've been practicing or trying to practice mindfulness. So for me, that's like being in the moment and noticing what can I smell? What can I touch? What can I hear? Um, what can I taste if it's food and just trying to like bring myself back. Cause I think that we spend so much time either worrying about the past, about what we didn't do or did do, or why did I say that or worrying about the future or what we have to do next. And we rarely stay present in the moment. Right. So, yeah. And I will say like, we had a creating confidence, mental toughness workshop a couple months ago and the coping box literally revolutionized my life like I <laughs> wish I knew about that five years ago yeah so I'll, well if Emily from CNIB is listening she's the one that gave me that idea <laughs> uh, but yeah the coping box was creating basically something you can access through all five of your senses um, it could be like a box that you put those items in and actually, you know, pull out your coping box when you're struggling. Uh, or it's just that you know that those are your things. So it might be um, taste for me might be what I have right now, actually, which is a London fog, uh, Earl Grey tea latte, which I love. That's kind of my favorite beverage. So that's like a really calming taste for me. Uh, a smell might be um, an essential oil. Uh, Touch could be like a cozy blanket, something visual that you can see if you're sighted, could be whatever you that you find beautiful to look at or calming to look at. Uh, and then maybe sound 
could be like the sound of, of a brook or the sound of the ocean or maybe the music. So yeah, just kind of having those things to draw on when you're feeling a bit overwhelmed, right? Yeah, it's so, so helpful. So you've been using your coping box? Um, I've honestly kind of needed to use my coping box almost daily. So mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah, I was going to ask about like, how mental health has been impacted by COVID. I mean, it's kind of, if you believe in the whole like five kind of like love languages, you know, mind like kind of top one is physical touch and that's not just like romantically but it's with friends like I like hugging my friends and just that's been really hard because you know physical contact is virtually non-existent now um even like my family and stuff we haven't really been doing a lot of that during like Christmas or Persian New Year a lot of the things I like to do like going to restaurants or travel and that's something that Again, it was kind of a self-care thing, showing that, you know, I'm worth it to go and have this nice meal and that I can travel and have fun. And that's something that, you know, I haven't been able to do. No one's been able to do that. Mm-hmm. Well, and just isolation in general, I think, right? Not being able to be with people. Uh, I think, I don't know, Be if you live with family you probably had just about enough of those people (laughs) (laughs) and wouldn't mind to break, but um, it's all the other people that you don't get to see, right. That kind of spice things up a little, give us some variety. Yeah. The added kind of thing that goes with visual impairment, at least for me is orientation and mobility, just because I haven't been able to transit and, Mm even walking like I only recently started walking in my community uh, with my white cane and I was pretty rusty it took me a while to figure out my rhythm and you know now that schools universities are potentially maybe going back in person in September it's like what am I gonna do I haven't ridden a bus in over a year yeah I I totally understand I I was just saying how much I miss my commute actually, because walking to the SkyTrain was like a 20 minute walk each direction. And then being on the train was my like zone out. Nobody's going to talk to me, listen to a podcast, listen to an audiobook, scroll Facebook. I don't have that. I don't have any of that. Right. So I don't have that like break between work and home. Um, I don't have that downtime. I also don't have that just being alone time. So walking was the alone time, but I feel nervous going out by myself now. It's sort of stressful. Like if you have the mask on while you're walking, I find it really impacts my hearing and, and my echolocation really. So it's just harder to kind of get a sense of things. Yeah. Yeah just the independence factor too because in lineups like before all of this you know I could clearly tell where where the lineups were because people would be standing right behind each other and now they're so far apart that it doesn't even look like a line so I can Mm -hmm. never tell or like you know another thing with independence is with the machines where you type in your debit card or credit card number a lot of them have a plastic kind of overlay over top of it Right. So you can't feel the buttons. And And if if you do, if you take like, well, 
even just like pushing the button to cross the street or pushing a button in an elevator, people are doing that with their elbow, but it's impossible when you're blind. Like you, I mean, maybe the button to cross the street, you could kind of use your elbow or your back of your arm or something, but we kind of need our hands to find where we're going to press, right? Yeah, right. <laughs> I like to like feel the arrow and kind of see where it's pointing to make sure I'm pressing the right direction or I leave my hand on the button to kind of feel it vibrate and that's mm-hmm. when I know to cross the street. I kind of let us off track from the, you know, what to do to maintain good mental health. One of the other things that I do daily is is gratitude. Um I write down three things I'm grateful for every day. And I really like, it's not just like, oh, I'm grateful for my husband. I'm grateful for my house. I'm grateful for my bed. I really like think about that particular day and what are the moments in that day that made me feel particularly grateful. So it could be something, a person in my life that was just like extra inspiring that day, or it could be you know, I'm grateful that my husband made tacos for dinner because they were delicious. (laughs) But I do find that it helps me realize that there are still moments to be grateful for, even when it feels like life is kind of dull lately. (laughs) Yeah, like I need to get a lot better at doing my gratitude journals. I kind of do them on and off. But I think when you're going through depression, and when you're kind of in the middle of it, it can be so hard to find like, the good in like life so I think that's really helpful because it can kind of give you something to hold on to yes and also our brains like when you know that you have to write down three things you're grateful for each day your brain starts looking for things that you could be grateful for it's kind of cool so it's basically like if you focus on all that's bad in in your life guess what you're going to notice all the things that are bad in your life but when you focus on what's good you tend to notice more things that are good so it's it's kind of a cool byproduct so even if it's really hard to think of anything positive uh try like there's always something right even in your darkest moments there's always something So one of the things happening this May during Mental Health Month is an upcoming conference that is being put on between Blind Beginnings, the Provincial Resource Center for the Visually Impaired, and the BC Vision Teachers Association. And it's called Partners in Resiliency, Seeing Mental Health Differently. And it's a two-day conference, uh, May 13th and 14th. So May 13th is a community day. So it's open to anybody who is interested in mental health as it relates to visual impairment. So that could be parents, that could be youth or young adults who are blind, that could be teachers or anyone who works with people who are blind or just anyone really who's interested. And then May 14th is a day that is devoted to vision teachers. So their topics are specifically for them. So that that one's only for teachers of the visually impaired. So before I kind of go into what you can expect during the community day, since that's probably the one that most of our listeners would be interested in, why, Nika, do you think it would be important for teachers of the visually impaired to understand about mental health? I think that, you know, kids spend a lot of time at school and typically with 
teachers of the visually impaired, there's a lot of one on one interaction. And if anything, you know, that's the best time to kind of see where your students at or see where the child or youth is at with mental health and kind of notice to see if there's any red flags going on. Yeah, definitely. Um, One of the sessions I'll be presenting is is kind of about you know, you, it's common that a lot of teenagers maybe don't want to use a white cane because they're the only one in their school. They don't want to look different and kind of all of the internal stuff that's going on around that and how complicated that is. Um, I don't, I don't, for me, it was huge. Like I didn't, I didn't even want my exams to be enlarged because I didn't want anybody sitting around me to see that my paper had bigger print on it. Uh, I wouldn't, I wouldn't use my cane at school. I would rather people thought I was rude than think that I was blind. Like I had some serious hangups about my visual impairment. I'm not sure if you experienced anything like that. I did. And I think at the time I was frustrated um, when I would kind of be forced to use it or, you know, I wouldn't really like no one ever explained to me why I needed all these accommodations. And Looking back now, I know that adults, obviously, like, they wanted the best for me, but I think just knowing how to kind of bring it up in a way that's more palatable for me to understand or for anyone to understand when they're kind of going through that kind of anxiety or going through all of that kind of self-consciousness is really important. Yeah, and I, I, I definitely don't remember anybody kind of trying to tell me um, you know, maybe like, let's decorate your cane or let's try a different colored cane or let's like finding ways to sort of make me feel empowered to use it because they understood the shame that I felt around it. I don't know if that would have made a difference, but I think it was just this insistence of like, you need to use it. It's dangerous if you don't. And, and not maybe understanding past that of like, what this represents and what that means to me, or maybe even asking me, like, what do you think people think if they see a white cane? What do you think people's perceptions of blindness are? Uh, Cause I had some pretty big ideas that probably weren't even correct, but I was carrying those around with me. So the hope is that through, you know, this conference, people will gain a greater understanding of what's going on inside the mind of young people who are blind or partially sighted. And, and if, if there is more understanding, then maybe that will help, you know, in all, in all the educational ways as well. Yeah. And I think it's great. Like all of the resources with the colorful canes and blind beginnings at our Christmas parties, we did like cane decorating stations. So I think it's becoming a lot more normalized yeah and I mean we spend a lot of time at blind beginnings talking about uh uh, while trying to sort of portray that there isn't anything wrong with you if you're blind we just do life differently and and kind of this positive perspective of blindness like we're not less than and in some ways maybe we're you know, we're, we're, we just do life differently and we have challenges to overcome as, as all people do, but we're just as worthwhile as any other human. Cause I, I don't know. I think that definitely can be at the core of a lot of mental health issues is just feeling like you're not as good as everybody else. Right. 
Yeah, and I know, like, before I did youth leadership and stuff, like, I would never take my cane to the grocery store. I'd never take it to doctor's appointments. Now, I'm almost insisting, like, Mom, come on, like, I want to take my cane here. And, you know, it, mm. yeah. Yeah, yeah, me too. I just memor- I, I, I wasted so much energy memorizing where all, all the obstacles were in my life, you know, literally walking from my home to like all the way to work, my commute and knowing exactly where every pole on the sidewalk was every, everything that I would possibly have to navigate. I just would memorize it and carry my cane folded for so long. You have to get over that, um, negativity, I guess, right? That negative outlook or view of blindness first, because that's really what was holding me back. It yeah. Wasn't. And like, even like with confidence, I feel like I'm more confident walking with my cane than I am walking unsure or doing sighted guide with my mom. Mm-hmm. Okay. So if anybody wanted to come to the May 13th community day of the conference, um, let's see some of the topics you would get to listen to are, uh, the road from grief to acceptance is bumpy. That is one of my presentations. So I'll be kind of talking about for parents who have a child who is blind, usually it's unexpected. And so it's natural that there is a sense of loss because the child you expected, um, the sighted child you expected is not, is not to be. So there is absolutely some grief that happens there. And I'm going to talk about my own loss of my vision and my own journey towards acceptance, which was kind of a long and bumpy one. So I'll be talking about that. Uh, And then we're going to have a youth panel and I believe Nika is going to be part of that youth panel. So I'll be talking to some youth and young adults about their journeys and what was helpful and what wasn't. Um, Then in the afternoon, there'll be a presentation entitled when life is too loud for our kiddos, how to turn down the volume during a time of increasing overwhelm and uncertainty. And that presentation is about anxiety. So children who are struggling with anxiety and how to help as parents or teachers. And then we finish off the day with humor is power. Laugh with me and we'll conquer the world. And that is a, so the The anxiety presentation is a counselor. I believe the humor one is as well. And the humor one is a counselor who's blind. So anyways, I think it'll be a really interesting day. Lots of interesting topics. And it's only $20 to register. You can find the information on the Blind Beginnings website, blindbeginnings.ca. And it's May 13th. So hopefully people will sign up. Well, Nika, thank you so much for joining me today and for sharing so openly about your own experience. Uh, This is a really important topic, and I think hearing people's stories helps other people realize they're not alone. Unfortunately, I think there is still a bit of a stigma around mental health, and the more we talk about it, the more likely that stigma will hopefully eventually go away. Absolutely. And I really appreciate being able to be on this episode and talk about something that I'm so passionate about. And I'm really happy that talking about this is so normalized and that it's being incorporated into the new curriculum in school and 
even gym class and health and career, they're starting to talk about mental health. And I just want to break down all of the stigma for not just disability, but also mental health. Awesome. Okay. So what are you going to do for self-care today as we wrap up? I feel like let's do some good, you know, role model, some good mental health um, hygiene here. What's your self-care tonight? Yeah, so I have not done my dry land training for the day, so I will do that. And I'll probably watch some Netflix and put some lemon essential oil in my diffuser. And I already did my morning skincare routine today, but I will also do my nighttime skincare routine. That's awesome. Well, I did get out and do some exercise this morning and had some outdoor time and I've got my London fog. So I, I think my evening will wrap up definitely with some couch time and Netflix, which <laughs> for me is like mind numbing bliss. <laughs> so I look forward to that. You've been listening to Limitless, the Blind Beginnings podcast. If you have a question, a comment, a future topic request, please send us an email to limitless at blindbeginnings.ca. Please share our podcast with a friend, subscribe, and join us again next time. This podcast has been brought to you by Blind Beginnings, an organization based in Vancouver, Canada, that supports children and youth who are blind or partially sighted along with their families. Music for this podcast is composed by Sean Bishop and Clement Chow. Production and audio editing by Rob Minot. For more information about Blind Beginnings and the work it does to support children and youth who are blind and partially sighted along with their families, visit us on the web at www.blindbeginnings.ca and also remember to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. We thank you for joining us and we look forward to seeing you next time.